dates. I have four save the dates for you to, to write down. The first one is Tuesday is election day. If uh, you don't vote, I vote by mail. I voted like a month ago. Uh, but if you don't vote by mail and you actually go in, vote. If you don't vote, you can't complain. I didn't say which side you got to vote. I'm just telling you. You're not allowed to complain if you don't vote. So vote. The second save the date I have is next Sunday is the time change. Some of you are very excited about that because you like getting the extra hour where, I don't know, it's the worst day ever. But anyway, every year I say this, I always, I always say, what we should do is we should just not change element next Sunday and then figure it out over the week. But we are changing because then it would just throw everybody else off and, you know. Anyway, time change next week, set your clocks forward an hour. The third save the date I have is that on April 9th. Normally, what we do when it comes before Easter is we do what's called a Good Friday service. We are not doing a Good Friday service this year. We're going to do a, what's called a Monday Thursday service. Yeah, Monday, Monday Thursday, it's, uh, Monday simply means mandate. And the mandate is that we are supposed to love one another. And so we'll talk about that on Monday, Thursday, and kind of what that means. It's, it's going to be low-key. It's not going to be that long. It, it, every time we do one of these, it's a different. So it is going to be different than the other ones that you've been to. But this year, we are doing what's called a Monday, Thursday service. So put that on your calendar. And then on April 12th, that is Easter Sunday, we're going to do four services. We're going to do a Saturday night service at 6 p.m., so if you're like, oh, I hate the traffic on Easter Sunday, go to the Saturday night at 6 p.m. We call that one practice because it really is. <laughs> and then we are going to do three Easter services on Sunday. So we will do those. If you're going to help out in the children's department and you want to go to a service so you're not like there all that you can come to Saturday night as well. Um, there you go. So those are my four things. None of you wrote anything down. Way to go. <laughs> oh, did you? Nice. Easter is on the 12th. Monday, Thursday, Sunday. Okay, you guys are going to be a heckling crowd. This is going to be really fun. If you're new to Element, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room, and they look like this. On this side, you're going to get a big idea of what we're talking about, some questions for you to talk to one another to reflect on what we talk about today. And then on the front side, you'll get the verses we're covering and then all those announcements I told you about. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. And when you, open, when you download it, it just says Bible. You open that up, click on More and then Events, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements. All that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for reading of God's Word? Uh, this is Acts chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. And it says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you teach us what it means to truly be saved by grace and to live and walk in that understanding. And that we would be a people who lift you up and that we stop adding things to your grace and simply live in the good news of our rescue. That we are saved by what you did and not what we do. And we would live in the great freedom, the freedom that that brings to our lives. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are going 
through what we're calling Acts Part 2. That is the second part of the book of Acts. That is chapter 13 through the end of the book. Uh, four years ago, we did Acts Part 1, and that was Acts chapter was 1, 1 through 12. Today, we get to probably my favorite chapter in the book of Acts, and that's Acts chapter 15. Uh, in this, you're going to see this debate in the early church about this thing called law versus this thing called grace. And law versus grace is something every single one of us deals with today, whether you know it or not. You say, well, how is that? Well, we all become acceptable to other people by how well we meet their expectations. People become acceptable to us by how well they meet our expectations. And I talk to people about this sometimes, and almost everybody says, I don't judge anybody. I don't have expectations. You're all a bunch of liars, okay, because we all do. If you talk to somebody and they constantly and consistently lie to you every single time you talk to them, what are you going to do? If you don't stop talking to them, you're not going to believe anything they say. Why? You have an expectation that they wouldn't lie to you. And they lie to you, and you're like, oh, well, I can't trust the thing you say. They didn't meet that expectation. If you have someone who is mean to you all the time, they come to your house, they they kick your dog, they punch your grandma, they eat your yogurt out of the fridge, whatever it is, your favorite things, and they continually do it, you're going to stop inviting them over to your house because you have expectations, and they don't meet those expectations. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have some expectations. Expectations. We should protect ourselves from abusive people and liars and thugs and people who think country music is good, you know, those kind of things. But what, what, I, what I'm trying to point out is when we fall short of other people, when we don't meet their expectations, there are judgments that come with that. When people don't meet our expectations, there are judgments that come with that. And what we tend to do is take how we deal with one another and then we lay that upon God himself. And we think that's how God deals with us. If we do good, God wants us. If we don't do good, then God doesn't want us. This even goes into how we speak about becoming a Christian or being saved. We say words like, I accepted Jesus into my heart. That's not how you become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is that God is the one who has accepted us. That God has brought us in. We are told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him... Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What we do is live in a place where we surrender our lives, knowing that God has now accepted us into his family by what Jesus did. And that's going to be kind of where we end this whole thing, where we're going. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Well, you also need to understand, in this thing called Christianity, many times what we will do is we will lay our own expectations on other people about how they're supposed to act. Many times God will lay convictions on our hearts that we will live a certain way, and we tend to take our convictions and lay them upon everybody else. And when people don't measure up, we think, well, they're not a good Christian. We're not the judge of that. God is. It is God's rescue of us as a people. Our righteousness in his sight is based upon the merit that he has done for us. So I'm going to give you some background about where we are today. What has happened is that God has made all these promises in the Old Testament that Jesus would come. And we'd be saved by what God does to rescue and save us. So about close to 30 AD, give or take five years or so, Jesus died on the cross 
for our sins, to give us his righteousness, to take our sin, to take our death and give us his life and bring us into relationship with God. Jesus dies on the cross. He is resurrected on the third day. Eventually, he will ascend into heaven. But 50 days after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes on the church. And what happens at that point is the modern church essentially is born. And empowered by God's Spirit, this guy named Peter will go out and he will give his first sermon in the book of Acts. And 3,000 people will believe and hearts will be transformed and people will be saved. Peter and a guy named John will continue to spread this gospel that the church is supposed to speak about to the world. Somewhere between 31 and 35 AD, this guy named Stephen, who is one of the first deacons in the church, gives a message that connects all the Old Testament to what God is doing in the world, and he rebukes people for their hard hearts. The people with those hard hearts are like, we don't have hard hearts, let's kill him. Because they have hard hearts. Right? So they go to kill him. The person who oversees this killing is a guy named Saul who becomes the apostle Paul. Paul actually almost brings about that first Christian martyr in the church. Now, Paul then, Saul at the time, gets letters from the Jewish elders to go and pull Christians out of their homes and arrest them. On the way to Damascus, Jesus shows up to Saul, Paul, in a blinding light and knocks him on his butt and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Meaning, you know, me as in me and the church. And Saul says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. And so Saul, Paul, believes. He becomes changed. He starts to follow Jesus. And now Peter and Paul start to speak about the grace of who Jesus is and his rescue. Around 44 AD, a guy named King Herod Agrippa I, he executes this apostle named James. He throws Peter into prison. An angel comes and gets Peter out of prison and leads him out. Believers then, at this point, start to transition from the church in Jerusalem into this place called Antioch in Syria. In Antioch in Syria, that starts to become the center of our Christianity, starts to spread to the rest of the world because of the persecution in Jerusalem. You have a lot of teachers and preachers that end up being gathered there. Approximately 47 to 48 AD, Paul and Barnabas get set aside by God's Holy Spirit to go out on their first missionary journey. It's what we talked about the last eight weeks of what has happened. This journey took them between 1.5 to 3 years, depending on what you look at. A lot of Jews, a lot of Gentiles believed in this missionary journey and and came to follow Jesus at, at the end of that. Other people wanted to run Paul and Barnabas out of all of their towns. Now, after those two chapters, Paul and Barnabas have come back to Antioch in Syria and they rejoice at what God is doing in the world. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. This is where we start. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These are their expectations. If These are our convictions. And if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to be circumcised. This is a big deal. So keep your place in Acts 15, but open to Genesis chapter 17. I got a little bit of work to do here. There is a question here concerning what's arising out of the preaching of God's grace as the gospel, this good news of Jesus, goes out from strict Judaism and into the Gentile world. For Jews, there is a long history of calling. What is interesting about the first 12 chapters of Acts is it shows how God keeps pushing his people further and further out of their comfort zone to realize that I am rescuing and saving everybody. Trust me in this. And so the Jews understood rightly so that they were called by God. 
They were appointed by God. They were sent to be a covenant community of blessing and grace in the world around them. And this goes all the way back to this guy named Abraham. There were promises that were made to Abraham millennia ago. God says this guy named Abraham, who is barren, has no children at like 65 years old. And he says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And from that son's going to come a son to a son to a son to a son. That eventually one day leads to God's son, Jesus, who will come and die for our sins to bring us back to God, that we will be saved by what Jesus has done for us to rescue us. God makes Abraham promises of land, uh, promises that you will be a blessing, so you will bless everybody else around you. God says to Abraham, from you, I will create a people for my own possession. Now, Abraham will have a son. That son will then lead to another son. That son will have 12 sons. And those 12 sons will eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. They will one day become a nation a few hundred years after this. Now, Gentiles could become part of that Israelite nation, but they had to go through a process. And this would include complete obedience to the moral and ritual law of Moses. And that would also include this thing called circumcision. So in Genesis 17, God is reiterating his promises to Abraham. Abraham has not had his promised child yet. Uh, Genesis 17, verse 7, God says this, And I will establish my covenant between you, me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So this offspring would be eventually the Hebrew people. The book of Galatians in the New Testament says this includes all of us as well. Verse 10, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Walk with me. Talk about the things I am doing with those around you. It's an ongoing legacy of faith that worship of God extends beyond ourselves. Abraham, get a long-range vision for your family. This is what we're all supposed to have. If you started with a terrible dad, Abraham's dad may have been a really terrible dad. Stop letting him dictate the rest of your life. It can start over with me, Abraham, will walk into grace. And God talks about a sign for this and what this is. At marriage, you have a sign, you give rings to one another. Noah gets off the boat and, and after the floods, and God puts a rainbow in the sky. Abraham gets circumcision. And I wonder if he's thinking, can I have another rainbow? Because <laughs> that'll be okay. God says, every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, I know when you got up this morning and decided, let's go to element today. You probably were not thinking, I hope we talk about circumcision. It's my favorite subject. But you got to go where the Bible goes, so we're going to talk about it. And just as my warning up front, I am going to say some words that might make junior high boys giggle. Get over it, okay? So go with me. Circumcision is the removal of what is called the foreskin, the tissue that covers the head of all male penises. At Abraham's time, they were adults when this took place for the very first time, and it would have been done with a flint knife. A flint knife is essentially a sharp rock. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So in Greek culture, in Greek culture where these people are talking, you're like a bunch of junior high boys. In Greek culture, they believe that you shouldn't do anything to 
change, cut off, mutilate the human form. So none of the people in that church in Antioch would have been circumcised. Can you imagine hearing Paul's message of grace? You understand the gospel in your context. You believe who Jesus is. I want to be part of the family of God. This is amazing. And then Paul leaves and goes somewhere else. And somewhere else official comes and says, I'm with the church as well. And I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Paul forgot something. You need to chop off your foreskin. I'm sure a lot of Gentile men would be like, hell is fine. I'll just just go there. Genesis 17, verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, it is no coincidence back in Genesis that God chooses this part of the anatomy of men, because if that's committed, all of a man is committed. Because this is where men are going to commit their greatest evil and their greatest good. It is where pornography and adultery and fornication come out of but also where we will do this thing where we make children with one another. Think about this. When God brands his men in Genesis, that's where he does it. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Well, that's a little easier because you don't remember it when you're eight. Jews will start circumcised on the eighth day to this day. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Now imagine. Abraham's going out, and he needs a new servant. So he's looking for, and people are like, oh, hey, I hope Abraham takes this because I hear he's really great to his people. Pick me. He circumcises you. Pick him. You know, I mean. Okay. What is really being said for Abraham in this place is as far as you can help it, have everyone you come into contact with, let them know that you walk with God and invite them to do that as well. God says, so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And when God's men in this time would look at themselves naked, they would remember who they belong to before they sinned. It is, it's not a sticky note that falls off. It's not a string you tie in your finger and it falls off somewhere. Chapter 17, verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. <laughs> That's actually a euphemism. Cut off. It's, it's meant to be. Anyway, because God's funny. Uh, he has broken my covenant. And if you follow this throughout the course of the scriptures, it's not just God who was serious about this. The Jews were very serious about this whole idea of circumcision. And what you see is later prophets will come, and the prophets will start to talk about how this idea of circumcision was circumcision of our hearts, and that our hearts become calloused and hard. And God will say things like, circumcise your heart so you can hear me and feel me move. It's this this bloody, painful thing that sometimes takes place and enables us to feel God's Spirit move in our lives and lead us and guide us. That's what it's meant to reference. It's a painful experience where our heart bleeds for God. Because of how these words were spoken, these Jews have grown up with this as part of their culture of who they are. The people, the Jews that go to this place in Antioch probably love God deeply. They probably love Jesus deeply. But they're telling the Gentiles, on top of trusting Jesus and his grace, they also need to obey all of the ritual and civil and moral laws in the books of Moses. There's this physical circumcision, but there are also rigid purity laws. You had to wash a certain way before you could go worship in the temple. If you and your spouse had sex, you had to wait a certain amount of time to be clean before you could go worship God. There were certain laws about what foods you could eat and what foods you couldn't eat. Clean and unclean laws. There's an abstain of anything with blood in it. This was the ritual law. Are you following me? Okay, go back to Acts chapter 15. Now we'll deal with this. What you have in Antioch 
is a church primarily made up of Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles. And what they're being told is that they are not really saved. What they're being told is you need to first become a Jew before you can become a Christian, before you can be in the family of God. These people had all of these convictions they had in their heart that they laid upon these other people and said, this is what you must do in order to become a follower of Jesus. And none of them had to deal with grace. They all had to deal with certain things that we did to our bodies and how we live certain things in our lives. Acts chapter 15, verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And this is the Paul that I know and love. Paul is having none of it. Just none of it. Just no small dissension is a nice way to say that Paul flipped out. It's pretty cool. They argue back and forth with each other. The guys from Judea are like, the church in Jerusalem agrees with us. And Paul is like, that is BS. If he said it that nicely, that is BS. I know they don't agree with you. So Paul and Barnabas, they go to Jerusalem. This will become the first Christian council in the church to hammer out theology. We actually call this the Jerusalem council. Before we get there and move on, you got to understand, we are called to be a people who are serious about the grace of God. Not just because it affects us, but because of how we as a people will represent who God is to the world. God's grace is not, I get to sin like crazy, God loves to forgive me, or it's a match made in heaven. This is perfect. God's grace is God's favor, which literally undoes the hardness of our self-centered hearts. It's not our morality. It's not our convictions, though God's grace will bring some convictions to us. But those convictions don't save us. God's grace is what saves us. We need to be a people who understands God's grace enough that we can point out in the world when it is diminished, when Jesus' name is diminished. And there seems to be something inside of us. Maybe it's our flesh. Maybe it's our pride, whatever, that makes us take what is the best news in the universe. And whether it's out of fear or a sense of control, we add to or change it. When we add to or change the good news of Jesus and his rescue, we take the greatest news and we change it from being the greatest news in the world to being this twisted thing that is useless news. And it's not good news to anybody. I'm going to give you a modern day example. And if I offend you, Maybe you need to be offended with this. I don't know. I heard Matt Chandler talk about this, and he really put his finger on what I was feeling about this whole movement that took place a few years ago. Um, there used to be this movement in the church that people were really into, and it was called True Love Waits. And I, I believe me, behind this whole thing was a great premise. Uh, true Love Waits until you're married to have sex. Okay, great premise. Statistics show this and bear this out over and over and over again. If you do wait before you get married to have sex, you typically have more sex and better sex and you stay together. There's all kinds of statistics behind that. And so the premise is, is a good one. But they would do all of these rallies. And typically how these rallies would go was there'd be a speaker. And he would walk up front and he would have a rose in his hand. And he would smell it and say how pretty it was and it's so great. Then he'd toss it into the crowd. And he asked them to start passing it around. As they passed it around, he would talk about venereal diseases. He would tell everyone, smell this rose, touch its petals, and then keep going about disease and destruction as it's passed around. It became very fear-based in the end. Some of you are the rose that's being passed around. These are the bad things that can happen. About 30 minutes into his talk, he would then say, where's my rose? And he have it, this rose brought back up to him, and it's just, it's just jacked up, right? Because everybody's touched the rose, the petals are gone, it's broken, it's like, hanging, just, it's terrible. And he would say... 
Now, who would want this? Exactly. Like you go, just a deep intake of, oh my goodness, really? Really? To be fair, this guy probably loves Jesus. He has this conviction inside of him that he viewed good for all of those kids. And it's not a bad conviction. But what he did is he did what the Pharisees did in Acts chapter 15. Oh, we've got this thing, and I'm going to lay this upon you. And it leads to kind of a pathetic theology. Now, don't get me wrong. No one, no one wants their son or daughter to be promiscuous like that. I have, I have talked to lots of dads. I have never met one dad who said, oh, yeah, I want my daughter to have enough sex so when she gets married, she's really experienced. And I've never had a dad say that to me, ever, ever, okay? But where this guy goes wrong and he got lost is he lost his confidence in the gospel's ability to shape and mold the hearts and lives of people. Instead, he attaches the greatest news in the universe to fear and to control. Uh, Matt Chandler says, God help him to shame. Imagine you're in that crowd. You have made some poor choices in your life. The gospel doesn't become good news to you there. The gospel just became devastating news. Who would want you? So let me answer this. Who would want you? Jesus does. There you go. Because our righteousness is not based upon ourselves. It's based upon what Jesus has done to rescue and save us. That's where our righteousness comes from. It comes from God. So you have these people going into the early church with these convictions. They think that everybody must follow. And they tell them the only way for you to be saved, being the family of God, is to do these things. So, Paul goes to argue for grace. Chapter 15, verse 3. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. That is also an amazing verse because Samaria was a place the Jews at one time wanted nothing to do with and it just called them brothers. Verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they go back from Antioch. They get to the bottom of this question here. Is there anything we must do for salvation on top of faith and grace? Anything else? Is there anything we add to Jesus and his work to be saved? Do the Gentiles have to cut off their foreskins to become Jews? Now, don't judge the Pharisees too harshly. They have grown up in a culture where this is just normal. The, you know, Jesus comes out of Judaism, and so the, he's like their guy. And so you can't just like, oh, those guys are so terrible. Really what a lot of commentators think is happening at the end of this is they're really asking the question, if the Gentiles don't have to become ritualistically Jews, how are we supposed to have fellowship with one another? How are we supposed to then hang out? Because if one person sees something as freedom and another person sees that exact same thing as defilement, how do those two people actually get along? And so there's lots of questions that are all involved in this. They're debating these things around the ritual law. Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to stop eating their steak medium rare? Do they got to get the bacon out of the house? And the question is, if they don't, how are we supposed to ever hang out together? Acts 15, starting in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate. Guys, do you see that? Christians don't always have to agree with one another. After much debate, we can debate one another and still get along because it's Jesus who we serve and follow. 
It's political season. Remember that. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. How does God cleanse hearts? By faith alone. Verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Is there something on top of faith and grace necessary for salvation? No. No. Do the Gentiles have to become ritualistically Jews? No. And Peter has two arguments. The first one is a guy named Cornelius. In Acts part 1, did two messages about this guy. You can go back and listen to it. Cornelius is a commanding officer in what is known as the Italian cohort. Uh, this is like a special forces Italian general. Peter, is God calls him, you're going to go talk to this guy. And Peter's like, I can't step foot in a Gentile's house. And God shows him this vision three times. And Peter's like, I can't touch anything unclean. And God goes, how dare you call unclean what I have made clean? So these guys show up, and Peter goes down and preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls, and they're saved. Peter starts with, there wasn't anything ritualistic going on in Cornelius' house when the Spirit of God saved them. God didn't say, oh, have them get circumcised first. Get the ham out of the house and make sure they cook all their steaks. It was just Jesus crucified, resurrected for you. The Holy Spirit fell, showing that these people were saved by faith through grace. They, They are saved. I think Peter's first argument is really... God has already saved Cornelius. I'm not going back 10 years later and say, you need to chop off the end of your penis. I'm not going to do that. Okay. Second thing, and this is the best argument right here. Right here. This is the best one. It's my favorite. Are we really asking the Gentiles to do what we, the Jews, have not been able to do? That's the question. We haven't been able to keep this law of ours. Our fathers haven't been able to keep this law of ours. How do we expect the Gentiles to keep the law of ours? Paul will go into the book of Romans. And he'll talk about the Mosaic Law, both the moral law and the ritual law. And he says it's given to us, not that we would be saved by it, but that we would realize in ourselves and our own obedience there is no salvation, that we are terrible. We all lie. I lie. You lie. If you don't lie, you're a liar. I, I covet things. You covet things. There have been times when bad things have happened to people, and I'm like, they totally deserve that. That's a form of coveting. When there have been times when good things have happened to people, I thought they didn't deserve that. Why did God give them that? Oh, and that's a form of coveting. It is. It's saying that God doesn't know what he's doing in the world. Uh, I've never cheated on my wife, but I still got to guard my eyes because there's lots of things on TVs and movies I shouldn't be looking at. In Element U this week, we kind of talked about this. They went through you know, each of those laws in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, and kind of showed briefly how we all fall short of all of those things. I'm guilty. You're guilty, and all of them. And really, the only test around the law is that we all have failed. But it's kind of designed that way, because the point of the law was never to be saved by the law, but that we would understand our need to be saved. Because the the good news is that there is a righteousness that supersedes the law. There's a righteousness that supersedes your righteousness with all your morals and all your convictions. There's a righteousness that supersedes the righteousness of the Pharisees. It is a righteousness that is given to us by grace as a gift of God. We can never earn it on our own. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Peter's argument is we are being saved the same way everybody else is being saved by grace. That's how salvation works. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas now join in, chapter 15, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Then this guy named James jumps in, not the James who was martyred. That's a different James. This James is actually Jesus' brother, who uh, was the head of the Jerusalem church at the time. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. God says this, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to the Lord. Grace. You don't have to circumcise yourself. Woo! Way to go, right? God's working. Let's just be on God's team. Verse 20. But, you're like, what's the, what's the but there for? Uh-oh. But we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So it sounds a little weird. We're not going to lay any of the rituals on the Jews, on those Gentiles, Except for these rituals of the Jews. We're going to talk about that next week a bit and, and what it means and what it actually doesn't mean. But this really comes down to the idea, again, how are they going to fellowship together? How are they going to get together? Because the Jews viewed blood as defilement. There were lots of things in this Gentile culture that they would have seen as defiling for them. So how are they going to be around it? How will they then join together? How will they solve God's people being able to love one another and worship together to bring all cultures together under Jesus? It's by learning how to serve one another, which is the result of the gospel. And so James isn't trying to lay a bunch of ritual law on top of all of these people. What he's saying is, consider your brothers when you walk with one another. Don't do anything that would rob them from being able to enjoy the favor of God as you worship him together with one another. And we're going to talk about that again next week, like I said. But I am almost out of time today. I feel like I'm talking really fast to try and get through all this. And and not just focus on circumcision, so you're welcome. Um, So I want to close out with the gospel, because I think it's really important. At Element, what we talk about all the time is this thing called the gospel. Each week we try to explain what the gospel is, what it means, what it doesn't mean. But I wonder sometimes, do we really hear the gospel? Do we really hear those things? Because there's a lot of people who say things like, I tried Jesus and he didn't work. And I always want to say, you didn't try Jesus, you tried to be good. And the Bible says we're terrible at being good. And that's why you feel like he failed, because you tried to be good and you can't measure up. We are terrible at being good. When we try to be good, we become annoying and self-righteous is what happens. And a lot of times people think, oh, if I tried Jesus and he worked, it's because you had something in your life that you wanted to work out a certain way, and it worked out the way you wanted. Oh, so Jesus worked. And then we say, oh, well, Jesus didn't work uh, if maybe you had something you wanted to have happen it didn't happen. Maybe your addiction doesn't go away. Maybe your marriage still falls apart. Well, then he didn't work because anything not working surely has nothing to do with us. <laughs> it's very arrogant. It's very arrogant. So the gospel is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's, that's the gospel. It's that Jesus did this so that his righteousness could be given to us. He has come to pay the debt we can never pay, our sin burden. 
And so he comes to take that away from us and give us his righteousness, take our death and give us his life. And we are a people who get invited into unconditional relationship with God again. God doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need, which is himself. And in so doing, we get rescued from ourselves. The results of the gospel is our rescue. We get placed into the family of God. And a good question for us to ask today is, is he really your rescue, or are you using him to try and get the thing that you think your rescue is? Like if you are single and you think getting married is your rescue, you will use Jesus all you can to get that thing that is really your God in the end. And then you'll get married one day and you'll think, well, this didn't save me exactly (laughs) because it's not designed to. Jesus is who saves us. And yet we will constantly try and use Jesus to get the thing that we really want. We will throw all kinds of convictions upon ourselves and other people. Well, if you really want this, you should do this. because that's. It. And we start saying all these crazy words, and we forget that the gospel is about God's grace given to us, calling us in, his merit given to us. We are saved only by grace. That's how we're saved. Do we lay ourselves down, trusting him and all that he is? Do we truly do that? Do we truly understand 2 Corinthians 5.21? For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's where our righteousness comes from. Not from ourselves, not from our convictions, not from our merits. It is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We do not add to it. We live in it. We live in the merit that God has given us solely by what he has done. Now, that doesn't mean our lives don't change. It doesn't mean there isn't a morality that starts to come out of that. But we are not saved by our morality. We're not saved by laws. We are saved by what he has done. And what that will eventually do is it will humble us as a people to begin to live in the grace that he alone provides. And so instead of throwing all of our convictions on other people, we will start talking about the good news of the grace of Jesus first and saying this is how we come into relationship with God again, that grace and this gospel that we speak of will be paramount in all that we do because it becomes central to who we are when we really understand it. And this is what's going on in Acts 15. Is the good news of Jesus' rescue of us central? And their whole thing is yes. It must be, as it must be for us. And this is why I bring you guys to communion every single week. Communion is where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. And Jesus said you do this to remember me, to remember what I have done. What do we remember? That we don't save ourselves. That he is the one who rescues and saves us. It's not based upon our merits. It's based upon his, which he gives to us. And that is a beautiful thing to remember and steer us back to God's graciousness every single week. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back if you need prayer. Maybe you're in, a, you're in a place today, and you have been trying to have all these things to make yourself acceptable to God. You have all these things you've placed upon yourself, and you're always falling short of those things that you placed upon yourself. And you're saying, you know, why do I always feel guilty? Why do I always live in shame? Why do I always live this way? Well, because you're trying to earn your own salvation by what you are doing. And you need to trust in God's great salvation that is already given to you. And I'm not saying that God doesn't bring us convictions, because he does. And I'm not saying he doesn't change our hearts to understand different things about morality in the world around us. But they are all meant to come as a result of what he has first done in us. And so we cannot go to other people and say, this is how you live, and then God will love you. No. 
It's God loves you. God has called you to himself. We center ourselves on the gospel of his rescue of us. And that changes our lives. And if you would like somebody to pray with you about that, they would love to pray with you about that. Really, the, the whole redemption group thing comes to a place of understanding God bringing us out of our places of slavery and bringing us into places of freedom because of what he does and continues to do. Um, I would invite everybody in here, if you would so choose, you can give because God gave so much to us. There's offering boxes next to every single door. Uh, there is some snacks outside. You can grab some meat. You can take some sermon notes. Ask one another the questions on the back of that. I mean, really get honest with some other people. Talk about what expectations you have placed upon other people, especially around the gospel. And then maybe talk to one another about what expectations people have placed upon you that weren't the gospel. People thought they were the gospel, and they laid them on you and made you feel horrible half the time because you can never measure up. Kind of start talking through those because it will help us to realize the places where we have moved the gospel from being central to being not the greatest news in the world to being something else. And it needs to come back so we understand where our lives were meant to be lived in God's good grace and rescue of us. Let's be that people who understand the great sweetness of freedom that God has brought to us so we live out his good news everywhere we go. We don't have to tell people that need to be circumcised. We get to tell people is you get to live in God's great grace given to you in the person of Jesus. And you can be restored in relationship with God and one another because of what he has done. Let's be those people. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who simply have this, this deep, childlike faith. That we would trust you as our dad who has rescued us and brought us into his arms. Because we could not save ourselves as much as many times we think we can. And we would start to live in a place of humble trust of who you are. And that humble trust would lead to places of obedience. But we would understand that our righteousness comes only from you. And then as we begin to understand how you rescue and save us, that our vision wouldn't become myopic where we'd look only at ourselves and our own rescue, but we would see how you have called us to be that great blessing to the world that is around us. That that same understanding of the call you gave to Abraham to be a blessing would be deep in our hearts as well. That the places of callousness that are inside of us as we look at the world around us, that you would circumcise that off of our hearts. And that you would have us begin to understand with a passion and an intensity what you truly call us to in the world. Because you have made us and called us to be your hands and feet. But there is no way we will ever do that if we do not first understand the good news of what the gospel brings in our own rescue. So have that be central to who we are and our understanding. The great salvation that we have received ourselves, the great redemption that you have given to us, and that we would surrender all of ourselves to you. To be made new, to be born again into your family, and to live out this great hope that you have given to us. 
have us live as a redeemed people, speaking of your hope and your mercy. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.